We live in a time of way too much destruction. Power seduction. allegiance to war on this land our heroes nameless soldiers who died too young our country's beat the warrior drum the marching band and the military song we're taught that for freedom violence is not wrong we know the history of slavery and civil war war is not civil our soil soaked with blood and gore we speak of freedom but our legacy is death from bullets to blades weapons that steal out when poor people and people of color roll deep they call them gangs and terrorists and the army and police protectors of the weak it's all wrong from the top to the bottom you could never solve a problem with an m16 or a shotgun 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 That erupts and orders that corrupt and discipline that disrupts the best of our humanity. Mind control, training exercises, simulated warfare that numbs us to violence. The deepest discipline and potential power is the maintaining the peace in the darkest hour. It's not soft or weak, it's hardcore to stop war as they drop more. We let our songs roar as blood pours on our shores and your shores. We stand up and say no more, no more. To those who say I disrespect those who died for my freedom, bleeding, barely breathing. That's a straight up lie. They didn't have to die. Okay, so uh, can we talk about guns and the Second Amendment? I'm going to have a lot of things to say here that nobody on either side of this issue is going to want to hear. So um, get ready to be um, completely pissed off and alienated. Uh, First of all, I want to start off by uh, quoting a little line from George Orwell and his great essay, Politics in the English Language, in which he writes, The great enemy of clear language is insincerity. When there's a gap between one's real and one's declared aims, that's when uh, you get into the realm of, um, of obfuscated writing. So uh, with that, why don't we take a little look at the um, Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment. First, a little bit of um, historical background is in order here before we take a look at why the Second Amendment is a non-grammatical model of equivocation. Sorry, folks. That's just what it is. Um, The Constitution was drafted in 1787. Without the Bill of Rights, without those 10 amendments, which were stuck on at the end a couple of years later. And uh, the reason that they were stuck on is because while the um, Constitution was being drafted um, in the backwoods of Massachusetts, the um, militia forces of the um, Commonwealth of Massachusetts were mopping up the um, last remnants of Shays' Rebellion, where a bunch of backwoods farmers had taken up arms against the um, newly formed government of the United States, 
over um, the fact that uh, they weren't getting their veterans benefits and, uh, you know, they had after having fought for their freedom in the revolution and their lands were being uh, foreclosed by the big bankers in Boston and so on. Isn't it interesting how little has changed over the past two centuries? <clears throat> so um, the framers realized after Shea's rebellion that uh, they were going to have to throw a sop to the rabble in order for their you know, new republic and their constitution to have popular support. So in 1789, the Bill of Rights was tagged on to the Constitution as a sort of a progressive postscript to what is in many ways a reactionary document. And indeed, just um, a couple of years after that, in 1791, the whole affair repeated itself with um, the Whiskey Rebellion in the backwoods of um, Pennsylvania. And uh, again, you know, kind of an issue which uh, remains with us to the very present day. I mean, you know, the revenuers are still going after hillbillies who are, um, you know, uh, producing their own hooch in the backwoods of Appalachia. And more to the point, you've got, uh, you know, repression on, um, on cannabis growers, you know, all over the country. You know, potentially going to continue even in states which are legalized now, like California, for the growers who don't want to come in from the cold and be licensed. And in any event, you know, you've got the federal government, the DEA and so on, which um, says they're going to continue to enforce the law regardless of what the states do. So the same issues with us. Uh, untaxable um, uh, revenue from controlled substances. Same issue. Um, so why don't we uh, take a look at the um, at the actual text of. Um, well, let's just compare the First Amendment and the Second Amendment, and you'll see what I mean about, you know, insincerity being the, um, the great enemy of clear writing. The First Amendment, my personal favorite, um, is crystal clear. It's extremely eloquent. There's no ambiguity, and there's no bad grammar or punctuation. Follow it closely. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, comma, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, comma, or abridging the freedom of speech, comma, or of the press, semicolon, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble, comma, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. All very clear, all very eloquent, says exactly what needed to be said, and just as relevant today as when it was written. In contrast, the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Okay, so you have got um, how many commas in that sentence? One, two, you've got three commas which make complete grammatical nonsense out of the whole thing. Okay, uh, for starters, you know, a well-regulated militia. If you didn't have the comma, then it would be a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms uh, becomes the, the subject of the sentence. Whereas with that comma, you're setting up being necessary to the security of a free state as a as a clause, as its own clause. So therefore, you think when you start reading that well-regulated militia is the subject of the sentence. 
And then, lo and behold, when you come out of that clause being necessary to the security of a free state, it's like the sentence starts all over again, and you've got a new subject, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. In other words, it's complete nonsense. And then you've got yet a second superfluous comma after the right of the people to keep and bear arms, making it completely ambiguous as to what the subject is. Is the subject the well-regulated militia, or is the subject the right of the people to keep and bear arms? Completely ambiguous. So um, it's a non-grammatical model of equivocation, and there's reasons for this. And one of the reasons is that this stuff was just as controversial way back in 1789 as it is today. And there was this tension, even, you know, in the drafting of the Bill of Rights, when the framers sat down and worked it all out, there was this tension as to, or, or, the, or this contradiction as to whether the right to bear arms was an individual right or whether it was the right of, um, of, of the states to actually maintain militias for um, purposes of protecting against foreign invasion or, as was much more frequently the case, putting down internal rebellion. So, basically, the framers fudged it. They made it intentionally ambiguous, or I can't read their motives entirely. Maybe they made it unintentionally ambiguous. It doesn't much matter. In any case, they certainly made it ambiguous. It's not a grammatical sentence, and it's completely unclear as to what the role of the well-regulated militia, in fact, is. They felt obliged to mention it, but they were completely ambiguous on uh, how, in fact, it relates to the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And whether uh, when they're talking about um, the people, they're talking about an individual right, as in the other amendments of the Bill of Rights, or if they're actually talking about more of a, um, of a social right uh, or, a, or a collective right under state control, as would be implied by the phrase well-regulated militia, which in fact opens the sentence. So it's just a model of equivocation. It doesn't make any sense. And there's political reasons for that, which have to do with the context back in the day. So um, uh, let's keep in mind, you know, all the people today who want to glorify the Second Amendment as, uh, you know, protecting the right of the people to um, defend against tyrannical government. Well, indeed, that was one of the sentiments which the framers were playing to when they drafted the Second Amendment. Absolutely. But if you look at how it's more often played out in real life, okay, it was the, um, it was Shays' Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion that were put down by the state militias in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, respectively. And uh, as has been pointed out, you know, the militias would subsequently be used to enforce slavery in the South and to, uh, you know, um, steal the land of Native Americans, carry out massacres of uh, the indigenous inhabitants of this continent. Most famously, the Sand Creek Massacre of 1864 was carried out by a sort of um, uh, what was called a volunteer cavalry out there in what was then the Colorado Territory. Um, basically, uh, a, um, a sort of an irregular um, uh, you know, pioneer militia force, which had sort of been uh, deputized by um, by Colonel Chivington. Uh, but uh, basically, you could say by a militia. So, you know, 
both the conservative and liberal positions on the Bill of Rights are ignoring this context. And they, uh, I mean, the conservative position holds that it's merely an individual right. And that um, just as in the other, um, you know, nine amendments of the Bill of Rights, the framers were referring to the people and they are ignoring that well-regulated militia clause. Whereas, you know, the liberal position is that, um, you know, it was only talking about a well-regulated militia. And though here's we get where we get into the into the reality that, you know, while the First Amendment is every bit as relevant and meaningful today as it was Back in um, back in 1789, the uh, everything has changed regarding the well-regulated militia, because after, you know, what the 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 militias, the state militias of um, the antebellum era, uh, which really were kind of a, um, you know, a volunteer citizen militia, people generally would keep their arms at at home and then they'd, you know, be called upon by the authorities to take the field Uh, today. Uh, after the Civil War, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, uh, that was tra- basically phased out in favor of the National Guards. Um, and there's still this tension even now as to whether the National Guards pertain ultimately, you know, to the states or to the federal government. Um, but uh, certainly they're much more of a, um, of, a, uh, of a professional military force and, uh, and, and explicitly, you know, more, more of an arm of, um, of, of the authorities. And uh, certainly, you know, uh, it's not, you know, a a popular citizen militia with people keeping their guns at home, you know, like, you know, over the over the fireplace to, uh, you know, take them down when, you know, muster is called. It's not like that at all. So um, this is, you know, the liberal position is that, um, you know, given the well-regulated militia clause, uh, the phrase, the word people in the Second Amendment is referring to the National Guard. Whereas in all of the other nine amendments of the Bill of Rights, the, the word people is actually referring to the people. But in this one, and only this one, it's referring to the National Guard, which um, is also disingenuous. And the reason that both the conservatives and the liberals are, um, you know, reading whatever they want into the Second Amendment is because they can. It's poorly written and intentionally ambiguous. So, sorry, guys. It just is. Uh, all right. So, uh, now we come to the, the present dilemma after, finally, with this um, school shooting in Florida. It's not, um, you know, just going through the, the usual pathological media cycle where um, initially, you know, if we try to talk about the issues in the immediate wake of the massacre— then we're told, no, now's not the time. It's too soon. You're exploiting the massacre. You're politicizing the massacre, blah, blah, blah. And then it disappears from the news cycle and nobody feels any urgency about it and nobody talks about it until it happens again. And then that cycle, completely pathological cycle, repeats itself. Well, now, finally, it looks like that cycle is broken. And this is largely due to the uh, courageous youth down in that community in Florida and elsewhere across the country who have been, uh, you know, taking matters into their own hands, tired of, you know, the grown-ups equivocating and, um, and, and dodging the issue and basically, you know, selling out and betraying youth 
Finally, the youth themselves are starting to seize the agenda and are forcing the discussion. And this is absolutely a good thing. This is a very, very salubrious thing. But um, once again, you can already see the sides being drawn on the question of, uh, on one hand, you know, you've got the liberals calling for gun control. And on the other hand, you've got, uh, you know, the conservatives calling for guns in schools and putting security guards in, you know, armed security guards in schools and metal detectors and arming the teachers. Utterly pathological. And the interesting thing about both of these positions is that basically it means more government control on either way. It means more government control. And either way, it means a, uh, you know, a thoroughgoing uh, militarization of society. And this is what is emerging. You know, there is a, a bipartisan consensus, which is merging on a generalized militarization of society, even if uh, there isn't um, a complete consensus yet on exactly what form that's going to take. But what there actually does seem to be explicit bipartisan consensus emerging on is the stigmatization and demonization of the so-called mentally ill, which is a phrase I don't even like. I'll have more to say about that later. Um, And this gets into, you know, um, Donald Trump's comments this week where he broached taking guns, quote unquote, even without due process, quote unquote, in the case of um, people who are perceived to be a threat in the case of the so-called mentally ill or in the case of what he called this, quote, crazy man, end quote, down in Florida. Now, I'm sorry. I think this is incredibly dangerous. And I will even say that while by no means do I, you know, glorify or fetishize the Second Amendment, as I've been elaborating here, I think that it's a poorly written, non-grammatical <laughs> um, exemplar of, you know, bureaucratic equivocation <clears throat> and obfuscation. But nonetheless, as long as the Second Amendment is there in the Bill of Rights, and as long as it is considered a fundamental constitutional right, depriving the quote-unquote mentally ill of this right sets a very dangerous precedent. And I'm not saying that I have any easy answers here. My job is not to provide easy answers. My job is to pose difficult questions. But as long as the Second Amendment is there in the Bill of Rights, then if we are not um, applying it to the mentally ill, that means we've already begun to, um, to deprive the mentally ill of their constitutional rights. And what's particularly pernicious about it is, you know, the uh, denial of due process, the explicit talk about denial of due process and the um, and the preemptive nature of, uh, you know, like the, the sort of minority report angle, if you will, where we're going to, you know, deprive people of this constitutional right before they've actually done anything violent. Uh, extremely dangerous. Now, you know, already, you know, some people, I mean, the NRA is basically still, uh, you know, they're still hoping that Trump is in their pocket. They haven't actually dissed the president, but I'm already actually um, starting to see stuff online that, you know, Trump is talking about a gun grab and they're coming for your guns, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I think that is entirely 
diluted. There is not going to be any generalized gun grab. There is absolutely nothing to suggest that. Uh, but what there is going to be, thus uh, it, it appears, is um, the, the beginning of, uh, you know, depriving the so-called mentally ill of their rights. So, you know, stigmatization and demonization of the mentally ill is the real danger here, not some kind of generalized gun grab, which thus far there is absolutely nothing to suggest that it's in the works. And if there was anything to even remotely suggest that it was in the works, the NRA would be speaking out against Trump, which they have not. And in fact, you know, the NRA, which has, you know, been the foremost advocate of, you know, this general militarization of our schools and, um, and, and, and a gen, you know, foremost, um, uh, you know, cheerleaders for, you know, the police and the prison industrial complex and so on. Uh, have also been the foremost advocates of, uh, you know, trying to make the issue mental illness as opposed to guns. So I have this to say about mental illness. Strictly speaking, it doesn't exist. It's a social construct. Now, today in this society, if you, uh, you know, are labeled psychotic or schizophrenic or bipolar, you're going to have a very, very hard time of things. And, uh, you know, you are going to um, not be able to function in society. You are going to be outcast. You are going to be ostracized. And quite possibly, you are going to be interned and deprived of your rights. But that's in this society. In other societies in the past, it's been different. If you had been, uh, you know, the kind of person that today we label schizophrenic or are they still using the word schizophrenic? I know they're certainly still using bipolar. They still using the word psychotic. If you had, you know, received any of these labels back, um, you know, say in medieval Europe, well, maybe you would have been burned at the stake like Joan of Arc. That's possible. But maybe you would have been revered as a, um, a mystic or a prophet like Peter the Hermit, the great preacher who started the Crusades. And, you know, I can already hear the, uh, you know, the just from having followed discussions about this online and so on, that, uh, you know, I can already hear the, the protest, but I am trying to shame people out of taking their meds, which they feel that they, or in fact really do, depend on in order to be able to function and to get along and to feel okay in society. Well, I'm not doing any such thing. I plead innocent. I am not trying to shame anybody out of taking their meds. I am only insisting that when you take your meds, you're doing so in a social context, just like every single thing that human beings do, we do in a social context. This is where both sides are missing some critical points, and both sides are missing the really tough questions which need to be discussed about this whole phenomenon. You know, the whole... um, tiresome guns make us safer mantra, the notion that everyone should be armed, even in grade schools, and ready to blow away the bad guys, is precisely the logic that has led to such paragons of social stability as Syria, Somalia, Libya, Bosnia, etc. Thanks, fellas. Very helpful. And then there is the opposite dogma, only seeing gun control as the answer to the problem, which focuses everything on the instrument and dodges the tough question of why 
so many people are taking out their frustrations in this ultra pathological way. We are allowed to talk about mental illness, quote unquote, and we're allowed to talk about gun control. We are never, ever, under any circumstances, allowed to talk about social alienation or the atomized landscape of suburbia. And I will point out that these kind of, um, you know, school shoot-ups never happen in the cities. You know, we've been told all our lives that, you know, the cities are the terrible breeding grounds of social pathology, whereas everything out there in the suburbs is just hunky-dory. And, uh, you know, this is certainly evidence quite to the contrary. In, um, in cities where people actually live on top of each other, and I would argue tend to have, you know, closer social networks, you never hear about this kind of thing happening. It's only out there in the atomized landscape of, um, of suburbia. I'm saying out there because I am doing this rant from the Lower East Side of Manhattan right now. There's never in the history of New York City, for all of the social pathologies we have here, has there been this kind of a, um, of a school shoot-up. Only happens in suburbia. Interesting. Think about it. Only out there in, uh, you know, where, in places where there isn't any, uh, where there isn't any, like, uh, you know, pedestrian street life, where everything is based on the automobile, there isn't any town square, and um, everything is just kind of, you know, sprawling, and there's no there there. This has got a toll on the human psyche, which nobody has thought to look at. So, uh, yeah, we aren't allowed to talk about that, though. We aren't allowed to talk about that. And uh, we aren't allowed to talk about the cult of individual revenge that Hollywood has fed us from Death Wish to Rambo. And we certainly are not allowed to talk about the lowered expectations which have been forced upon youth by the globalized economy. You can talk about guns, but you cannot talk about the more fundamental problem of gun culture. The gun fetishists have actually got a point when they say that everyone is armed in peaceful Switzerland, so the problem isn't guns per se. What they don't get is that their macho posturing about blowing away criminals and miscreants and fetishizing guns as a symbol of rugged individualism, glorifying guns as what made America great, quote-unquote, by enforcing slavery, exterminating Indians, and stealing a third of Mexico, are the very things that are absent from the more modest and mundane culture around guns in Switzerland. Finally, we're having the conversation that needs to be had, or beginning at least, (laughs) beginning at least, to have the conversation that needs to be had around this issue, as opposed to, you know, merely being admonished by the NRA that, you know, we're not allowed to talk about it while it's still fresh in our memories. And then, you know, it just disappears from the news cycle and nobody thinks about it or talks about it again with any sense of urgency until the next massacre and then the cycle repeats itself. Okay, that cycle appears to be broken and that's a good thing. Finally, we're beginning to have the conversation that needs to be had. Needs to be had. But as we have this conversation, as we begin to have this conversation, I uh, just urge that we resist the lore of easy answers Above all, that we resist the stigmatization and demonization of the mentally ill, quote unquote. And, and I will acknowledge that this is the, um, the toughest nut of all 
that we begin to at least discuss the kind of profound social change in terms of our economy and the very landscape of suburbia, which is going to be necessary to maybe, you know, begin to restore the obvious wounds in our culture, which are leading people to commit acts like this. Now, you know, the gun control people have got a point, without a doubt, when they say that, uh, you know, you can only um, carry out so much uh, damage, you can only commit so much damage with a knife as opposed to a gun. And, you know, there have been um, knife attacks on schools in China. There's been a whole wave, you know, several over the, uh, not nearly as many as the gun attacks we have here in the United States, but there's been a few over the course of the past, you know, few years in China. There's been, uh, you know, knife attacks on um, on schools. And the gun control people point out that, um, you know, you attack a school with a knife and maybe maybe you'll kill one or two and, you know, maybe you'll wound a few more, but you're not going to leave 17 dead. That's a point, without a doubt. It's unarguable. But I also think it's instructive. And here, you know, I'm speculating somewhat because uh, I haven't actually done the research in terms of where, what kind of environments in China these um, attacks have taken place in. But nonetheless, I think that we may find that it's instructive that this kind of, um, uh, you know, pathology is emerging in China now as uh, China is embracing the dystopian development model, which has been pioneered here in the United States over, you know, the past uh, generations since uh, the end of the Second World War and the um, expansion of suburbia and the hegemony of the, the private automobile. So... That brings us back to the point that, yeah, you may um, be able to kill much, much more effectively with a gun than with a knife. I mean, that's unarguable, of course. But, you know, knife attacks on schools, that's not particularly pleasant either, is it? So ultimately, the conversation that we have to have is about why this is happening. What is it about, you know, our um, mass consciousness and our culture in the United States of America at this moment, this moment basically being in the, you know, the years which have passed since the Columbine massacre, which is driving this kind of thing. And once again, I'm not saying I have any easy answers, but I am saying that this is ultimately the most urgent question that we need to grapple with. Another sign of hope that we've witnessed since the Florida massacre is that the, uh, you begin to see signs of the erosion of gun culture, even out there in the parts of the country where it is presumed to be strongest, out in, uh, you know, white working-class rural areas. And you've seen, um, you know, there's been a few videos, which I've now seen online, where, you know, self-identified hillbillies and rednecks have, uh, you know, gone on camera and taken out their machine tools and sawed their guns in half, uh, saying that, you know, I don't want, uh, you know, this, this gun to fall into the wrong hands. I no longer want to have it around. But if I sell it, I can't say for sure that um, it's never going to be used to kill somebody. Whereas if I, uh, you know, actually permanently disable it, I'll be able to do so, be able to do so. So I'll uh, be able to, you know, determine that well and truly. So, uh, you know, that's to my mind, a real glimmer of hope that the kind of cultural changes 
which need to be, uh, which ultimately need to happen, are in fact beginning to happen. Let me know what you think. If you appreciate this rant, subscribe on Patreon and join the Counter Vortex.